0: We are repentant, we are grateful, we are redeemed, we are prayerful, we are First Baptist Church. Good morning, and it is good to be with you in this space together, our uh, courtyard, so to speak. If you're in the room, gosh, we're delighted uh, that we're here. Uh, if you're continuing worshiping at home with us, thank you so much for tuning in uh, for worship. If you're new with us, uh, whether in the room or online, thank you so much. Uh, for trusting us, uh, a desire to get to know us and to worship Jesus whom we love and serve. Thank you. We'd love to know that you're here. So if you could go to fbcsa.org slash connect, that's just the simplest way just to drop a line, and say, hey, I worshiped with you today and, and would love to build a relationship with this church family. We certainly would love to build a relationship with you. Also, let me remind you that a part of our worship is, is giving, uh, acknowledging that all that we have all that we have, that's what David said, all that I have is, is the Lord's, and we give as an act of worship and entrusting what He's given to us uh, back to Him to say, yes, you are our everything. So continue to give um, uh, to the furthering of our ministries of church families uh, and as an act of worship. You can do that by going to fbcsa.org give. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I pray that you help us even now. Um, There are a lot of different faces and families and individuals in this room, and there's a myriad of different reasons uh, and attitudes and perspectives that we have come uh, to you this morning. Um, And so, Lord, I ask by your grace that you set our hearts and minds aright with great longing and expectation, great anticipation and great need, uh, that only you, uh, by your mercy and grace in your Son, Jesus, can meet. So, Lord, may we be ready for worship. May we be ready, hands wide open, ready to receive today. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Will you stand with me? We're going to read Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 18 through 21. But will God really live on earth among people? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Nevertheless, listen to my prayer and my plea, O Lord, my God. Hear the cry, the prayer that your servant is making to you. May you watch over this temple day and night, this place where you have said you would put your name. May you always hear the prayers I make toward this place. May you hear the humble and earnest requests from me and your people Israel when we pray toward this place. Yes, hear from us, from heaven, where you live, and when you hear, forgive. You may be seated. So Solomon is still dedicating this temple that he has just finished building, and he's now standing in the courtyard surrounding the holy place and the most holy place. The courtyard was the place where the people could gather. Uh, The holy place and the most, most holy place, only the priests, and then the high priests could enter, but the courtyard where everyone could assemble. And so here we find Solomon on this platform uh, and beginning to pray over the people to this God who has made His presence known in this thick cloud that has descended upon uh, this inaugural event in the temple. And Solomon acknowledges rightly, there are several things that Solomon really gets right in the passage that we just read, right? Um, He says, Uh, right there in verse 18. But will God really live on earth among people? Why even the highest heavens cannot contain you? How much less this temple I have built. Solomon really gets it right that the temple was not meant to hold the presence of God, like all of who God is. It was not a house for him. God does not need um, a home to live in. Uh, In fact, Solomon says even the whole heavens and the earth can't contain God. What, that's not why we built this. The temple is for us. Um, the other thing that, that Solomon really gets right, and we, we have read this previously in other chapters, well, Solomon understands that the purpose of the temple is for us to be made right, right? For the, the Israelites to be made right. It was a place of atoning, atoning sacrifice, that in order to walk towards God or have fellowship with God, the people of God had to walk through those atoning sacrifices. And the movement of the priests from the, the altar uh, where they would uh, make those sacrifices uh, into the holy place and the most holy place was actually a picture of that movement of continuous and uh, a forward movement towards fellowship and communion with God. And so Solomon rightly acknowledges The temple is not a house for God, but it is a place where our sins are atoned for so that we could have communion with God. And then the second thing that he really gets right is what he emphasizes right here in this text, that the house of God or the temple of God is not just a place where our needs are met, where our sins are atoned for. But it's a place where we commune in fellowship with God, or another way he would say it, it's a place where our prayers are received by God. He would say the temple is not only a house where we atone for our sins, but it has become a house of prayer where the people of God can make their petitions known before a God who is meeting with them, which is astounding in and of itself, right? Right? that the creator of the heavens and the earth would make this covenant with this broken sinful people and say listen i'm going to make a way for you so that you can commune with me in your need you can make petition to me when you when you cry out i will hear your cry and answer your cry that's what that's what solomon really gets right and that's what he's modeling for us here, and that's what he's saying about the temple here. May you, in verse 20, may you watch over this temple day and night, this place where you have said you would put your name. Your name is synonymous with God's presence and his attentiveness to the people of God. May you always hear the prayers I make toward this place. May you hear the humble and earnest request from me and your people, Israel, when we pray toward this place. Now, Solomon isn't, isn't saying that there's something magical about turning towards the temple. What he is acknowledging is that God has chosen to meet with his people, descend upon the temple as a symbol of his presence. And he's saying, listen, you know, sometimes we just need that that physicality of things so that we can posture our heart correctly. The people of God saw the cloud descend in darkness over the temple. And he says, listen, when they are in a foreign land and they turn towards the temple, they are anticipating that our God is being attentive to their cries. A house of prayer. In verse 40, he says again, Oh my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to all the prayers made to you in this place. The temple is a house of prayer. And then Solomon gives all these various kinds of examples of petitions in his prayer. Lord, when we come in this way, Lord, when your people come in this way. I just want to reference one of them. This is in verses 28 through 31. I'm not going to read it in detail, but this sample of how the people of God might petition sounds awfully similar to kind of where we are right now. He says, Lord, when, when the people come to you because they have found themselves in a tremendous plague and overwhelmed by a disease. When they come to you, broken and humble, Lord, will you forgive them and may you teach them how to walk with you. And so there's this pattern that we find in Solomon's examples of petitions before the Lord whom God is receiving. There's a pattern on how we are supposed to come into the temple, this courtyard. There's a pattern on how we should be approaching God in worship and in prayer. And there's just a few that I want to mention. We probably could mention a lot. But the first one uh, that Solomon makes known in almost all of these is that when the people come to God in prayer, they come to him broken, fully aware of their brokenness. In this case, it was, it was plague, it was disease. We are a broken people, and not just a broken people, but a sinful people. And so Solomon says, when we come to you broken. Receive our prayer. And then he says this, and forgive us. So the other way that we are to come before the Lord is to seek Him for forgiveness. And those are linked. Our our brokenness and our sinfulness are linked. And so Solomon is saying is when our people come, they, they, they will come to you broken. They will come to you seeking forgiveness. But not only seeking forgiveness, they're also seeking restoration. In verse 31, it says, then they will fear you and walk in your ways. And so Solomon is saying, listen, this house of prayer, when we come to you, listen to us. And we, we will come to you broken. And we will come to you seeking forgiveness. And we will come to you eager to be restored so that we can walk with you again. In the right way that we should. In all of you. With, with great Fear in all the ways that we should be fearing the Lord. Solomon says that's the way we'll come. When we come in that way, Lord, listen to our cry. Listen to our cry. The temple was a place to seek and anticipate divine attention. When truth be told, they... Nor we are worthy of divine attention. But that's how they were to come into this house of prayer. When we turn towards the New Testament, twice in Jesus' ministry, once early on in his ministry, and another near the conclusion of his ministry, he enters that temple, the house of prayer. Do you remember? And what did he see when he entered into the courtyard? It had not become a house of prayer. The Word of God tells us in Matthew 21, um, verses 12 through 17, let me just read this very familiar story to you. When Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice... He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, as Solomon declared, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them, the Uh, The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, Haven't you ever read the Scriptures? For they say, You have taught children and infants to give you praise. And then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. Jesus entered that temple, and there are not many places where we see Jesus angry, but he is livid. Because the people that populated that courtyard, many of them had made the courtyard a marketplace. Many people from towns outside of Jerusalem would come in to the, leading up to the day of the atonement, they would... Come into the temple, and they were required by law to come and make sacrifice for their family and themselves as individuals. And they would have to go, and they couldn't use uh, the denarii, which is the Roman coin or um, the Roman coin that they would use. They would actually have to change it because the temple would only receive the shekel, which wasn't in use anymore. So there was kind of a monopoly there. And so you would have money changers um, that uh, would. Uh, receive the people who would have to get their denarii changed so that they could use the shekel to pay the temple tax or whatever else might be required of that shekel for them. And, of course, this was an opportunity for many to make money. They had to do this. They had to change their money. Well, this is an opportunity for us to take many of these people who were poor, didn't have much to begin with, so that we could make and turn a profit. And then you had people selling doves. And again, look, this is a perfect opportunity. People aren't going to bring doves, you know, tens of miles, hundreds of miles away. No, they're, they're going to just wait till they get to the temple and buy what they need to make sacrifice. And they could only afford doves. And so, again, here you have these, what Jesus would call thieves who are taking advantage of people, who are coming to make atonement before the Lord, who are coming into this house of prayer, and they have made it into a den of thieves where they are robbing and taking from these people. Jesus was livid because they had turned the house of prayer into den of thieves. He turned over tables. Get out. Get out. Those that were selling and changing money, they had come into these courts looking to satisfy their greed. And rather than being a beacon of light of the grace and mercy and presence of God, they became oppressors, thieves. Unashamedly, they didn't come seeking God at all. After all, they didn't need God. They just came to take what they wanted from others. And so it really begs a question for us, doesn't it? And the question for us is, what is our posture when we come into the presence of Jesus? Especially when we gather together. What's our posture? What is our heart and mind like when we come and gather together? to receive from the Lord out of our brokenness and desperation, our brokenness and need. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Um, just a very familiar scene. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples. He's receiving different people. and There's these parents that come, and, and they want... Jesus to lay hands on and bless their children. Of course, the disciples say, listen, uh, l- listen, don't bother Jesus. What does Jesus say? Let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. I think Jesus is reminding us once again in that moment, and even when he cleans house in the temple, He's saying, come to me like that. Are you coming to me like that? So have you ever considered the attitude or posture that you bring when you come to Jesus, when you gather with brothers and sisters in Christ? Even sitting now and receiving this this morning or singing songs of praise together, do you, have you ever stopped to consider the attitude of your heart and mind as you Posture yourself in worship. Is it? Does it take on the attitudes and expectations that these children likely had? Jesus, the King of God, is made up of such of these: humility, vulnerable, open in awe of this man whom they had seen, likely and heard stories of healing and incredible teaching and power. Do you come before Jesus? And do we gather together with a heart like that? Have you asked yourself that question before? But I want you to listen to me. There is a profound truth here that we see in the cleansing of the temple and we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 20 20 and 22 and 33 through 34. Let me just read these. So Paul is about to talk about people who gather together. And I want you to listen to these words. Verse 20. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Listen to that. He is rebuking this small church in Corinth. And he says, when you get together, many of you are not even interested in the Lord's Supper, what it means, what it's all about. You're not ready to receive it. You don't care about it profound right listen he goes on for some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others as a result some go hungry while others get drunk what don't you have your own meals own homes for eating and drinking or do you really want to disgrace god's church and shame the poor what am i supposed to say do you want me to praise you well i certainly will not praise you for this And then down in verse 33, he says, So dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. So here's the profound truth that I want us to uh, just wrestle with just for a bit this morning. When we come to Jesus... When we gather together to assert our own values, our own wants, and most of the wants that we have are to, to, to uh, meet our own selfish pleasures. In the temple it was greed. When we come to Jesus to assert our own values, our own wants, our own expectations, when we come to Him with a closed fist rather than an open hand, we don't only hurt ourselves. Now listen to this. We don't only hurt ourselves, but we hurt others. We do harm to others when we don't come into worship, we don't, when we don't come before Jesus with the right posture. That's profound. Jesus said, you have become robbers. You have taken from the poor because of your greed as you enter this place. And Paul says, listen, do you see what you're doing? You are taking from those others. You're not sharing with others. You're bringing shame upon the poor. When our hearts are in the right place. When we come to God with all the wrong reasons, we don't just do harm to ourselves, we harm others, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? When we ask the question as we enter worship, what can I get? What can I take, rather than how can we move and grow together before a God who has redeemed us and has a purpose for us, who has called us his own? We do harm. When Jesus had that conversation with that Samaritan woman, remember in John 4:23, he said, the, "The time is coming, indeed it's here now when true worshipers, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking. The Father is looking for, hope, for those who will worship Him in that way." And he still is. And in spirit and truth, what is? Jesus referring to, when he speaks to this woman, he's talking about vulnerability and full awareness of who we are and who God is, fully present and aware of our need and brokenness before the Lord and aware that God, the creators of the heavens and the earth, is redeeming us so that he can give to us in our need, so that we can know and taste his blessings, so that our deepest needs and desires can be met. Those of which we were designed for. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. Jesus said it another way, like this. And we often call this the cost of discipleship. It's in Luke, it's in other places in the New Testament and the Gospels. But he would say, Lose your life for my name's sake. Remember, the temple is where the name of the Lord would dwell. Jesus often. Or, well, once at least he referred himself as the temple. Of course, the Pharisees didn't see all that in what he was saying. But Jesus referred to himself as the temple. Jesus becomes temple, sacrifice, and high priest. Pretty cool, another sermon. But um, he says it in another way. He says, lose your life for my name's sake and you will find it. What does he mean by that? When we come to Jesus alongside others, when we come to him humble, broken, open-handed, and in awe of his glory and his love and his grace, and we give all of ourselves to him with great anticipation, and when we give ourselves to others, we begin to experience what real life is all about. He says, when you lose your life for my name's sake, that's when you're going to find it. You're not going to experience life when you enter into worship with a closed fist and demanding your own expectations be met. If you're pursuing greed or whatever else, we can put a lot of other words in there. If you're coming into worship with this, this self-exaltation where you're the very center of worship in your own life and you make demands of God and demands of others, you will never taste what real life is all about. It's only when you lose your life for my name's sake, when you give up your life for the sake of others, like I have given up my life for your sake, that you'll taste what real life is all about from the very beginning. By very beginning, I mean by design. By design. We were designed to know that kind of life in Jesus. Some of you might have experienced something like this, but that that bad friend that's always a taker, when you see the name pop up on the phone, you're like, ah. I don't want, they're just going to take my time, they're going to take my joy, and they're going to take my energy, and I don't have what they need for me, and I'm probably not going to give it anyway. You know what I'm talking about? All healthy, thriving, full relationships, whether that's in friendships or in marriages, are found in vulnerability, honesty, and giving, not taking. When we demand, when we take, when we seek to control, we rob others of joy and freedom. And we lock ourselves away in the temple of our own self-exaltation. We become oppressors. So the question again for us is when was the last time you evaluated your spirit in worship? Your posture in worship. Does your posture in worship, think about this. Does your posture in worship, the kind of posture that you entered in this morning, would it make Jesus angry? And it could, it potentially do harm to others. There's just a few examples I want to list, and this list could be long, but these are some that I've just, that have popped up into my mind that are kind of relevant. These are some of the postures that we can tend to experience in worship. And listen, this is so subtle um, many of us don't desire to enter into worship these ways. Uh, sometimes it just happens. It's just a manifestation of our own brokenness, right? We're sinful people. And so we find ourselves lapsing into these attitudes and postures in worship when we meet with other followers of Jesus or uh, in small group or, or when we just even come to Jesus on our own, we can find ourselves lapsing in these particular postures and the first one is political posturing this is so relevant today it doesn't matter what side of the aisle people are on there are clear movements that want to co opt Jesus for their own agendas right we all have a tendency to do this and we see it now more than ever Where we want Jesus to align with our political ideals and ideologies. When Jesus, at the end of the day, says, I have really nothing to do with Caesar. I have my own kingdom that's coming. And so, but we can slip into this. We want Jesus to align with what we think and feel and how the world should run. We kind of force him in there and we pull verses of scripture out. Jesus is all about this. Again, it doesn't matter what side you're on. It doesn't far left, far right. They're all doing it. They want to make Jesus into their political image. Throughout Scripture, Jesus says, I'm not going to have any part of that. Another kind of posturing that we experience that is rampant, especially in the West, is Christian consumerism. Right? We don't come and gather with a sense of vulnerability. We come measuring how church is done. Is the children's ministry run the way that we want? Is the preacher really the one that we like? Is the music the way we like it? Um, when When your preferences are more important than church is when we have lapsed into Christian consumerism. I just like things a certain way. And then we just have believers just church hopping until they, I guess, find what they want. They usually don't stay too long. Gosh, we're just listen. We're we're Americans. We have so much stuff. We can find what we want anywhere. When we begin to treat church like that, you're not doing church. You kind of become just like those in the marketplace. It's just I'm just going to take and take and take. And when you don't have what I want, I'll just move on to somewhere else. Folks, we're in this together. There's no church where you're going to find people who are perfect, our programs that are perfect. We are on a journey to become more and more like Jesus with one another and be a part of what he's doing. And the invitation for every individual and every family is, will you be a part of that? Rather than just trying to meet your need or your family's need. Gosh, we're all about meeting needs. Jesus is Jesus is never in the position of receiving. He's always giving. He's always giving. But this is my point, is when you open yourself up to vulnerability and honesty and all of this God who has redeemed you, not just you, but hopefully your whole family, when you come to him like that, when you're ready to pour yourself out for the lives of others rather than taking or judging them, you will know what real life is and you will know how your needs are met if we come to him like that. Uh, the, the third one I just want to mention, and um, you, you might never experience this, but I'm, I'm a pastor. Uh, we hear this probably more often than you, but I, I just want to call it the, the curmudgeon. This is the person that is always finding something wrong about something in church. It could be a person, and they're always complaining about something. Gosh, we can slip into that, can't we? Wow, I walked into a small group and they didn't say hi to me. They really don't care about people. Complain about that. I can't believe they do that. Gosh, I wouldn't do it that way. Gosh, if they only did it this way, man, things would just be incredible in this church. If the pastor, if pastor would do this, if they would do that, I can't believe they do that, did you hear what they did? Man, that person, many of it's us. We can slip into this. It happens really quickly, and we can be those people that are always just ready to judge and complain others, and it's almost as if we're just looking for opportunities to check out from being the church. Gosh, they act like they don't like me, so I'm never going to come back to small group. Man. How do you posture yourself in worship, in gathering with other believers? What's your attitude? What's your perspective? What are you bringing? No shock here. Jesus is the most important person in the room. Right now, Jesus is the most important person in the room. Are you yielding yourself to him? Are you posturing your life as Solomon kind of instructed his people by modeling these prayers? Are you coming to him fully aware of your brokenness? Are you coming to him fully aware of your need for forgiveness? Are you coming to him aware that you've got to start walking his way? How have you postured yourself in worship? Our God is ready to be the greatest benefactor in your life, in your family's life. And Jesus says, listen, the way you discover that is by losing your life for my name's sake. When you come into worship, will that be your attitude? Will that be your expectation, your anticipation? Will that be us? And so this morning, um, as we respond, I'm going to ask you evaluate your heart. Evaluate your heart. Have you found yourself lapsing in those different areas? I have. Sometimes I make worship about my own need for affirmation. I'm not the most important person in the room. Jesus is. Let's pray. Uh, Father, Lord, I pray uh, for myself, for others, Lord, that, that we would rejoice in this house, this church, that it would continue to be a house of needy people who are in need of you and one another. And that we come to this house with great expectation, great humility, great longing. Shape that kind of heart in us. And Lord, I, I pray for the individual today who maybe it's been a long time since they've entered into worship gathered with other believers with a heart like that Lord may they know your grace today Lord I pray that you give them the heart and mind to move and to act to repent to say I- i'm re- I'm ready I'm ready to return into worship like that not making what I want of it but to yield myself to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.